Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where we talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have access to hundreds of developers who are waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us, we'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget, we'll finish the project at no extra cost. Whether you have your own team already and need some extra help, or you are starting with an idea and you need to build your SaaS or mobile app from scratch, we can take your vision and turn it into reality. Contact us at onestop.fm. Let's talk about your software project today. We will be joined today on the Big Break Software Podcast by founder and CEO Andrew Butt of Enable, a collaboration platform for maximizing performance of your B2B deals while improving financial transparency and operational efficiency. He will share with us today how he became interested and involved in Enable, how he raised his initial funding, built the MVP, gained his first few customers, and was able to navigate zero to product market fit and on track of this year to move from 10 million to 25 million in annualized revenues. How are you today, Andrew? I'm great, Jordi. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. So maybe you could start off by specifically telling us what Enable does, what problem Enable solves for your customers. Sure, absolutely. So we are working with many companies in the supply chain. And so that would be manufacturers, distributors, retailers who are all working together to get products to customers. And what's really fascinating is the vast majority of global trade goes through the supply chain. It, it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't go directly from the manufacturer to the customer. And so the need to collaborate and work together using great technology to serve customers is is a big, is a big kind of opportunity and a big challenge and that's that's exactly where enable sits okay so you're most is it mostly is it mostly for e-commerce do you direct work directly with e-commerce merchants or or who are you who's your ultimate end customer yeah so the end customer would be retailers who certainly can and it does include e-commerce you know retailers if you like um also distributors and wholesalers that's a very big uh, target for us so we're working with a lot of distributors and wholesalers in many different industries and then we also work with manufacturers so all of those groups are are our kind of customers that use our product okay great and before the show um you mentioned that you started uh in 2015 can you kind of give me a, a run a, a rundown on you know where you were prior to starting with Enable, what what your background was, and sure. and, and then we can kind of get into how you came up with you know why you left and why you started Enable. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So my background has always been in um, software development, and uh, I have created and um, grown multiple software development companies where we've built software for all sorts of different. Uh, companies and that that's always been a fantastic learning ground to 
to learn about different industries, you know, different businesses, what their requirements are and where there are gaps in the market. Because typically when someone asks you to build software, it's because there isn't a great kind of off the shelf product that meets that need. So so that's really what I was doing in, in different guises up until 2015. OK, so you were were you working as as you had an agency where you were developing this these software products or what, yes. what was in what capacity? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, we were running software development teams who were building software um, for uh, various companies. Okay, great. And so how did the idea for Enable come to you? Sure. So this was an example where the same type of challenge and requirement was coming up time and time again. And customers kept approaching us about this. And this was to do with managing complex uh, rebates and incentives and deals in the supply chain, which which is the core and the kind of core starting point, if you like, of Enable. We can talk more about that in a little while. Uh, but this this kept coming up, and so we were actually building custom software to meet that need. And you know, we did it for the first customer, and the second, and third, and and then eventually we we realised this is such a huge opportunity to to actually build a genuine product here rather than kind of building custom software each time. Okay, that's well. That sounds like a great opportunity. It sounds like it was fairly obvious as well, as you say. You're like, wait a second. You know, this is a fourth customer, and they're asking for the same thing. Let's productize it. Can you tell me how you navigated that then? So you had charged presumably like a for a bespoke solution for one customer. They had paid you for it. Wouldn't they have owned that IP, or did you have to come back to them and say, hey, we'd like to productize this? Or uh, tell me about how you sort of transitioned yeah yeah sure um so i mean we had background ip and foreground ip and i think you know we were always very clear uh, in our contracts that that things like uh, data is all owned by the customer and a customer's proprietary business processes and practices you know they are all owned by uh, the customer but um the 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 generic kind of process of of that that everyone uses is is not something where the customer owns the ip so we were quite careful about that and and that gave us some good you know freedom to build the products when it came to to doing so okay so for example like if you had created a dashboard or something that would be that would be sort of a generic uh, process that they wouldn't if there was a custom customization in there or something that was particular to their business that they would actually own that is that correct uh, in some cases, it did vary by contract and by customer. We we had some different types of contracts, but but sure. I mean, there were definitely cases where we would build something that was totally unique to one customer, where they would own the IP. Okay, so um, when you went to build this MVP, uh, it sounds like you were an agency at that time. You were using cash flow to um, build the this product, and did you? take something did you take it and have to build from scratch or did you take something that you had already built for a customer uh and and sort of turn it you know into a product sure yeah great question so yes we were so we were using cash flow from the main business to fund the the early product development and that was very very helpful we enabled us to bootstrap for quite a long time um but we did we did start with a clean slate um so we we didn't try and just take a customer existing project if you like and adapt it um we had to sort of make quite a bold leap in saying right the next time we get a customer who wants this type of thing we will we will actually you know we will get them onto v1 of our product and so those first couple of customers on the product 
you know what they received was very light and we were kind of building the product as as we were delivering it to them which which they were aware of um but um you know that that was that was how we did it that's great and so so when they came to you um what specifically was the problem i'm still getting a little bit hung up on specifically sure. what what the what the pro the core problem is at yeah. that time yeah what okay would they so come to you they would come and say we're having problems you know it's we're in our car and we want to have coupons or what specifically was the problem okay so so the problem so it's actually around b2b rebates not not business to consumer and okay. the problem was that if we take distributors and retailers they are buying lots of products from manufacturers to resell and when they do that they earn rebates from from those manufacturers uh, when they hit certain targets, let's say volume targets, value targets, that type of thing. And the permutations of these rebate agreements are very broad. So, you know, some could be, as I say, value-based, some could be volume-based, some could be in tiers, uh, some could be in different units of measure. So it could be uh, depending on what the product is. And so if you can imagine uh, these distributors and retailers have this whole set of complicated rebate agreements with their suppliers, and there just wasn't any software that could model and calculate and manage all of those uh, well so these companies were all using spreadsheets to try and try and do this so the problem we were solving was uh, providing a a system where they could uh, set up all of their agreements in a structured way uh, and where they could all be calculated accurately and make sure that all of the rebates were being claimed in full i'd say that was the that was the starting okay. initial problem it took, that makes sense. Now, why were you in a position that you had so many people coming to you? Um, you know, this sounds like sort of a very niche market. Why mm. were you getting these customers coming to you for asking for this? Sure. Okay. So part of it was that uh, my co-founder um, of, of the business I was running then, and, and uh, Dennis is also the co-founder of Enable as well. Um, he actually is in the distribution world and runs the largest distributor in the UK, a company called DCS Group. And, and so Dennis and I got together and built built our software development company. And but we were in that kind of industry, so we were, ah, we, were, okay. we knew other manuf we knew manufacturers, we knew distributors. So that would be one reason. But what was really interesting is the first customer that we built a rebate management solution for was in Dennis's industry. But then we, we were referred into a completely different industry. So just someone we knew, a big advocate for what we were doing, they said we we think this this thing you've built in in the health, beauty and household industry actually would work in building products. And we've got this building products company. So we got an introduction to them. We had a successful project. And then we started doing a marketing campaign to other building materials companies. And we just sort of pivoted into that other industry and mm -hmm. and just found that, that you know we, we had a huge response rate to that to that marketing campaign. Okay. So when you built the, when you finally went to uh, build this product, the first customer that came, came to you was inside of, presumably was it inside of Dennis's uh, realm of networks. Yes. They came to, they came to, were they a builder? Were they in the building space? Uh, no. So, so DCS is the largest distributor of health, beauty and household products. Okay. Uh, so that's so they were Gamble, house, Unilever. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay. They were health and beauty. Okay, great. So they came to you, and and then how did you, how did you sort of tell them? Okay, we want to productize this. Um, you know, what did you make them? Did you make them sort? Of, did you charge twelve months in advance for uh, a product that didn't exist yet, or uh, talk, you know, walk uh, me through so, how you went? 
So yeah, so the first several customers we were just completely bespoke, and we built we built it each time from let's just say from scratch as a bespoke uh, product. And by then, our business was profitable as, as a software development company. So we we were profitable, and we decided to use that profit to build version one of our product. So so we did that ourselves, uh, you know, and just in the background, if you like, we just started building this product. And then when that product got to a MVP stage, uh, and then the next customer came along, we said to them, we actually are not going to build you something, we, we're going to sell you this product. And okay, that's how we kind of pivoted. Okay, so I see. So after the third one, you said, okay, we're, we're just going to productize this, we're going to start building it. And then eventually another customer came because you were so used to seeing this problem. It was, it, like, I mean, how often was this happening? Like, is this like five times in a year kind of thing? Um, so let me think about this. It probably, yeah. We, I mean, we probably built about about five different about five different bespoke systems before yeah. products, and that was probably over, okay. say, a two-year period. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. And yeah. so, how was the the product was 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 it essentially very well received when the when these new cu- customers came because you understood the problem very well? Yes, it, it was. And one of the real strengths we had in our development team uh, back then, and of course we're going back now, let's say you know five five years or yeah. so, is we had real UX um, skills, and so competing products were extremely dated. You can imagine in in distribution and wholesale and so on. Yeah. Software is not was not very glamorous, but we we were creating much uh, kind of nicer, slicker uh, solutions. So so that went down particularly well. That people said, "Wow, you understand the problem. You have a product, and it's actually a real pleasure to use." Yeah. Okay. Great. And and out of curiosity, what's the stack? It's Microsoft. So we're now all in Azure, and it's it's yeah, so it's all Microsoft stack, which is good for distribution and retail because those guys often don't want to be on Amazon. Yes. Okay. Good. Okay. So Microsoft Stack, and you just come up with these few customers. You're starting to build it. What was the pricing at that time? Uh, yeah. So as you can imagine, with our, our bespoke versions of the software in the early days, it was a large kind of implementation cost or build cost, and then a small support, maintenance, and hosting cost. Mm-hmm. And and then when we launched the product, we did pivot to a SaaS model straight away, where we had we had a a the main fees were annually recurring but we did also still charge a reasonable project fee because in those days we were bootstrapping and we we did need the cash flow just to to fund the business okay and so, and do you recall like what is the um like what was the so you do it just you just did an annual plan back then i mean what are these retail these guys are used to paying like sort of 2000 a month for this sort of a uh, of a product or or like what are the what are the fees uh, yeah that varies enormously but actually in the early days some of our customers were very large companies because again we the the benefit you get is bigger the the larger you are right. and and when we were bootstrapping working with large companies that could get a big impact enabled us to charge more and then of course that helped to fund the development so um it could it could vary enormously but let's say anything from say ten thousand a month to twenty thousand a month might be where we started okay so for like say like a procter and gamble comes in and they're 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 not even blinking at that as long as it's solving that problem and then you have a product fee as well so so at that time like what was going on with the agency was it um how many people were, were at the agency Sure. Yeah. So I would say we probably had about 
60 people in those days so 2015 let's say and and most of those were software engineers so maybe 30 30 software engineers of 60 in total okay and so how was that transition i mean it sounds like uh, that would have been would you still having to take on some custom projects or how did you transition from agency to to mm. SaaS, and what did you do with that excess yeah. capacity in in terms of engineers sure yeah no no it's a really it was a really uh, kind of interesting period and challenging decisions because again we, we were bootstrapping and we couldn't afford to to just focus entirely on a SaaS product at that stage because we wouldn't have been able to pay pay the wages so there was a period where uh, so you can imagine the original period was purely bespoke development being paid for by customers right. then the next period was where we, it was a hybrid and we were we were selling a SaaS product investing ourselves in improving and building the SaaS product and then we were still continuing to do some custom projects as well so that went on for a while and that's really the point we then raised our series a uh, and that the whole point of that series A was to be able to wind down and stop the custom projects, and and so that we then made that transition, which was quite painful in a way because we were turning away revenue and turning away customers. Yeah. Um, but we recognised in the long term we had to focus, and that was the right decision. Okay, this sounds like a very interesting um, period. So it sounds like you must have had to lay off um, some of the, uh, maybe a majority of that staff. We, we didn't actually really? we actually okay. didn't uh, didn't do that no uh, we because the way we had structured it and this is credit to my my kind of co-founder and operations uh, lead uh, my coo is that is dennis he had structured the uh, so no so so dennis is is on the board and he, he was also okay. a, a, an important co-founder but uh, david um my coo uh, david and i actually went to school together and he he kind of joined in the you know right at the beginning the way he was running the engineering teams was was on a rotation basis where every engineer could understand our own SaaS product that we were building, but they could also understand customer projects. So we were literally able to keep the entire team and pivot them <laughs> over time into, into SaaS. That's impressive. That's really impressive. Okay. So, so you, uh, so I gather you're coming to investors. Were, were you in the UK at the time or were you in the, in the U S? Yeah, well, that's another funny story because I was in the UK. So I'd set everything up in the UK. I'd always been in the UK. And um, what then happened was we decided to raise investment and I sort of looked around and decided that the West Coast of the US was the best place to do that. And I had spoken with investors in the UK and Europe and East Coast and so on, but I decided to, and I also realized that the best chance I would have would be to move to the West Coast of America. Um, and so rather than just knock on the door and say, could you fund us? And by the way, I'm in the UK. I thought I'll actually move here. Um, so I, I relocated to San Francisco and then raised the Series A. Okay. Now, what what was the response in the UK? Was it just like you weren't getting the the the, the quantity that you needed? I mean, what was the amount that you felt like you uh, needed to carry the team? Because you obviously yeah. knew those numbers. What did you need? Yes. Yeah. So I think it was more a question of aspiration rather than need, and in that the UK is very cautious compared to compared to say Silicon Valley, and the quantum of investment and the whole attitude towards uh, investing and then burning in order to grow a global company or build a global company is very different. So in simple terms, I probably felt I could raise a couple of million in the UK, whereas I could raise more like 10 million in the US with, with the same business. Okay, that makes sense. So it was it was fairly obvious to you to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So did you move, you yes. move to, um, did you move to the, 
like how was the whole immigration process for you? I mean, did did you have that and you had to set sure. up a company or how was that process? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we set up a company in the US and then we made an investment. We, we basically used some of our funds in the UK to invest in setting up the US and hire, you know, one or two early people. And that allowed me to get a five year investor visa to then come okay. and and basically set up the US operation. OK, so then it was probably pretty straightforward. You got set up in 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 um, San Francisco. You moved there, you were there and then you started to look for for the uh, the, the Series A funding. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And and at this time, you still had you still had sixty people, or had you brought brought it down to uh, uh, to a smaller level? No, no, it was continuing to grow. To be honest, so by then we, we were still, we, let's say, we were seventy people. We were just steadily, continuously growing. Okay. And you're at this time, were you had you transitioned to just the SaaS, or um, or was it uh, was it still taking on some custom projects to sort of feed the the team it sounds like you probably were because you didn't have that series a yet exactly yeah we probably i mean we had some ongoing accounts some ongoing customers we were doing the custom projects for so we were really in a phase where we weren't actively trying to take on any more but we certainly were continuing to do project work for those just to keep keep the cash coming in keep keep paying the bills okay and and at that time do you remember how, like how the the initial traction was going with the SaaS? I mean, was it sort of like, what were you doing for marketing and how are people finding out about you? Yeah, so we, we had a small sales team and and um, so we were doing some outbound and finding customers that way. And we also were doing quite well on Google organic search. So we were getting people just finding us for rebate management software. Those were probably the two main things. And we, we had basically no marketing at all. Okay, so just basically rebate management software. And people were saying, the, your customers at this time was like, this is driving me crazy. I'm on spreadsheets. And so they're they're actually just going rebate management software and, and coming to you that way. So it's a pretty, and it sounds like nobody else was around. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, so the large ERP vendors all say they can do this and they have a very limited capability, but it, it is basic. And then there are some of the small startups doing something as well. But for let's just say, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's it's very, very sparse. You know, there's, there's almost nobody. So, um, okay, it's, it's not a competitive space. Right. Okay. Um, and, and how was that initial um, raise for you guys? I mean, how long did that take? Was, was it sort of um, difficult for you to do? How, how was it received? Mm. Yeah. No, it was a fascinating process. I'd never raised capital before, so I didn't know what to expect. And the US culture is certainly quite different from the UK in terms of how it's, how it's done. But um, what are those but, differences? Um, like, what's an example of like... Sure. Well, I... Yeah, an example of a difference is in the UK, you would typically appoint a corporate advisor. So it'd be an accounting firm like an Ernst & Young or whoever, you know, uh, Capgemini, and, and they would then go and kind of run a process to approach investors with a with a kind of almost like an RFP. Mm -hmm. And you would almost invite bids, but the process is run by an advisor. Whereas I think in Silicon Valley, you would just get thrown out the room if you did that. I mean, <laughs> investors want to talk to the CEO and they want the CEO to run the process. Uh -huh. Uh, directly and they don't want to talk to any advisors so that that would be one example of a big difference okay and so when you, so so you're going around silicon valley you're going to to some of these big vcs or maybe even some small ones um 
what how is it like uh, the culture shock for you i mean what was it like were you literally just sending out emails saying hey i'd like to set up a meeting and and what was the reception sure so i, I did that and i didn't go very far i think i had zero responses <laughs> um but i then i started to be able to get some warm introductions uh, and one was via uh, a, a law firm uh, and it's a unique law firm who are us only but they they have an office in london and so they they really helped me to uh, meet some investors and also i'd done a study tour in silicon valley years before uh, which was for a, a group of cios to come and meet um, venture-backed companies in silicon valley so i reconnected with the person who had led that tour and he he made some intros as well so the cold kind of outreach got me nowhere but the warm intros really led to some strong investors the, the warm intros did okay and so what kind of how long did yes. it sort of like how many rejections did you have to um endure until you sort of figured out the right recipe sure well i mean I, really i think i would say the real meeting started in november 19 okay and in november 19 i hadn't yet kind of moved to the us but i was planning to move in in let's say january and I started meeting investors and I told them, look, I'll be here in January and I'm just here to show you what we're doing. And if you're interested, let's talk again in January. Um, so that started in November. And, of 2019. And we actually, Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And then and then we actually we actually agreed terms with the lead investor that we selected uh, literally at the end of December. So that's quite a fast process, isn't it? Six six weeks probably. Right, okay. So there's three years though that you were sort of um, banging your head against the wall in the UK trying to to raise money, or were you not doing uh, no, that? No, sorry, no, I wasn't doing okay. that. So um, as we said, we 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 kind of got the first customer on the product in around twenty late 15 let's okay. say um, late 2015 early 2016 and then we did spend uh, three years just bootstrapping okay. and just going to go uh, and, and we could do that because we had the cash okay. flow from our our services business so it really was only i would say i started to look at raising money in 2018 but we only really started trying to do it in 2019 okay fair enough so you're bootstrapping all that time what what why go for investment at that time you're bootstrapping it seems like you're doing well you're still growing customers are coming to you what what was the sort of the um the in the um mm. you know the whatever the idea to 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 get um, investment sure well i i think things were getting things were very tight uh because uh, we we were, could really feel those constraints of without having that cash we were we were really holding back we were still having to do all of this custom work which frankly was okay. becoming a big distraction and we couldn't do a lot of the things we wanted to uh, and as you know it's a, a hugely different mindset going from custom work to building a product so we were familiar with the the world of being paid by customers to build whatever they ask for which is fine. Um, but now we wanted to build all sorts of things ourselves that no one was paying for. And it, the cash was just very tight. And then the other side of it was we saw how big the opportunity was and how how big this could become. Uh, and we just wanted to go a lot faster. So so that meant we had to raise capital. OK. And has there been any regrets at all when you when you look back on, on changing from bootstrapping to uh, are there any sort of debt? downfalls to having investors you know and having a you know more structured um 
like a more structured board and people that you're, you're answering to? Is there, has there been any sort of, you know, regrets, I guess, from going that route or you've been happy with it? Yeah, no regrets at all. Uh, I think the only regret may be not, what, why we didn't do it sooner. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, um, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there are ups and downsides of, of, you know, having investors on board versus uh, not doing that. But the, the, for me, the interests are very aligned because what the investors want is is to see strong growth and journey towards creating a significant, you know, um, impactful company, and that's exactly what I want as well. So in that sense, the 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 objectives are aligned, and and having the board that can kind of really hold us to account is therefore helpful to ourselves because we have the same objectives that, that they do. Okay, that makes sense, and. In terms of the team before, were they in the UK? Were they mostly in the UK or were they all over? Yeah, no, they were all in the UK. So so at that point, again, let's call it 2018, 2019, uh, we had nobody outside the UK. And we only started hiring in anywhere else, you know, US, Canada and so on in 2020. Okay. And how has that, how has that gone with the hiring and sort of transitioning? What are you, what are you guys up to uh, for employees now? Uh, well, we have, yeah, so we now have 220 people. Uh, we have uh, about 100 in, in US and Canada, so 100 in North okay. America, and then the, the remainder are all UK. And have you done that just from, you? have you gone for additional rounds of fundraising now? What, like, what are you at now? Yes. So so we raised, so again, the goal was to raise a 10 million Series A, and we actually ended up doing 17 million of Series A in total. And then and then we did a Series B, which we announced in August, which was 45 million. So we've actually raised $62 million since the beginning of last year. Okay, great. And how was it going from, what was the difference like difference between going from uh, the Series A to the Series B? Was it, was it easier? Mm. It was actually easier, yes, because we'd got a lot of traction by then in the US, whereas before I was just some guy turning up really saying, hi, I've, I'm here from, the, you know, I'm from the UK. We've got nobody here. Could you give me 10 million? <laughs> uh, where, yeah. Whereas this time, this time we could say, look, we've got this really strong growth in the US already. We have an established US team already. And actually with the B, the investors came to us. So we didn't go to them. We, we just had inbound approaches and uh, they wanted, they really wanted to um, kind of Get, get and so when you're when you're in that position what makes you select one investor over another yeah so i think it comes down to kind of the the shared mindset and values and uh, uh, really the personality because of course each investor each major investor joins the board and this is someone who we will work with for a very very long time and so it really comes down to values chemistry you know can we work with this person and uh, that that was that was important to me and is it mostly been handled but since you're over in the US office you're mostly managing that is it that's, i mean how much of your time is spent managing the um you know that sort of relationship with the investors trying to raise more money is that uh, become almost like your primary focus? No, I mean, I think during a fund raise, then it does become very time consuming. And I think we might raise, let's say, no more than once a year, and maybe less than that. So um, for that, let's say for that actual raise, it does take up, let's say, half my time for, say, um, a month, maybe. Maybe it's a bit less than that. Uh, but for the rest of the year, it doesn't take up much time at all because all we share with our investors is the same information that we use ourselves internally. So um, it, it really is uh, just uh, quite a natural. There isn't really much additional work involved. Okay. And 
obviously it seems like you've been happy with your move to the u.s and with the with the fundraising there what could you tell your sort of um your british counterparts over in london that are trying to i mean what what sort of lessons or recommendations do you have that the guys that want to stay there how can the uk more maybe change their market or do you have some ideas there Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the kind of view I gave earlier was probably a little bit extreme and maybe a little unfair that there are some amazing investors in the UK and and some great successful companies uh, that, that are doing very well in the UK. Um, so so, you know, there are opportunities, but I just think the overall mindset is if you know, if, if you look at it this way, if you, if you look at all the kind of uh, software companies that have IPOs in the last few years, um, most of them are headquartered in California and most of them have Silicon Valley VCs on board because so if you really want to aim very big and you want to create a massive global you know multi-billion dollar company then I, I do still think Silicon Valley is where you want to be because it's just it's just access to the most talent in SaaS access to the most capital access to the best network the best ecosystem uh, but if if it's more you know growing steadily and and not trying to achieve that kind of um, public company unicorn status then then there's plenty of opportunity outside of silicon valley yeah that that makes sense and do you what what sort, sort of um how do you envision sort of where are you going with this um is the idea to really grow into and, go, and launch go public and keep carrying on or would you want to maybe go back to the uk and sort of get involved in the startup scene there eventually or what's what's your sort of overall plans no no i i'm very committed to this company uh this is my third startup and uh again the previous ones were more service-based like we talked about earlier uh-huh. uh, you know one of those was acquired by a privacy in london for example and another we, we just built profitability and, and steady organic growth but this is the one that that has this huge kind of market and and the opportunity to to be uh, a, a large public company so i'm focused on getting this to that point and and beyond and that will just be the start of a new a new chapter it's certainly not the end uh, at the point at the point that we go public so that that's that's all i'm thinking about for the for the next you know number of okay, years that makes it sound that sounds uh, reasonable it's it sounds like it's been pretty easy for you would you say i mean i'm sure there's been some ups and downs can you tell me about some of the uh has it been easy for you or what's been one of the more challenging periods well i think no i think there's lots of challenges for sure and you know that we the the investment raise in november 19 uh, although it was quite fast it's still a roller coaster because you you do go from having you know nobody replying to you to then having initial meetings and hearing positive feedback to then having lots of rejections and you think wow you know everyone's going to say no and and then you start to get several that are interested and so so, so that i'd say you know, i wouldn't say that was easy um at the, at the series a um for sure and then i think it's all the usual challenges of business is is keeping everyone happy so so keeping the team engaged and positive and 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 happy but and then customers uh, you know uh, making sure that customers are engaged that we're providing a great service and and um you know uh, keeping customers happy P- product decisions you know what we're going to build what we're not going to build more importantly and what the implications of that is so i think that's really challenging and at the current s- scale you know we need to be adding uh, people fast and and just trying to find uh, people you know right now is is very very hard so i think it's challenging to find great people and and uh, uh, bring them on board and get them 
equipped and up and running. I, so there certainly is no shortage of challenges. I think um, hiring definitely seems to be um, a, a huge issue. I'm noticing it myself even, just find, finding good engineers. And um, how have you been able to sort of navigate that? Uh, you cut out there for a second, just repeat oh, the question. So I was saying uh, hiring in particular has been difficult uh, even for me. How, how have you been able to, to man, you know, grow that fast and be able to maintain a high caliber of, of um, engineers on your team? Uh, yeah, so the, pr the process we've used with engineering is we've hired a lot of great people from university, believe it or not, and this is going back many years now, and we have a major training program in-house. So we bring in very capable, highly intelligent people with, say, math and physics degrees uh, from university and we have very strong relationships with key universities and then we train them and it does mean for the first few months they cut they don't produce uh, much but um, it we can kind of really mold them to how we want to work and then and then um, we have a very high retention rate as well so that that's been a great source of engineers over the years and which which schools are you i mean are you talking about the marquee schools you're only hiring from stanford and mit or 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 which which ones do you i mean does it matter does the yeah. university matter yeah i think that is certainly changing um now and uh, uh there's probably another big <laughs> big topic of conversation to go in, into that but what i would say is we still have the vast majority of our engineers in the uk okay. and that was our strategy so strategy was set up go to market and uh, other functions in the us but 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 kind of have the uk as our engineering center and one of the top universities there we've worked with is called warwick university it's in the center of england yeah. and that that's been a very very good um relationship for really? us really okay that's interesting over say like a loughborough or um oxford cambridge that's you've you found warwick really yes and i mean oxford's amazing as well for sure um but uh, warwick because we're actually physically quite close to warwick in terms of our uk location so that's been another advantage. Okay, so it sounds like, and, and not computer science students, you do math and physics, or you do computer science as well? Yeah, no, we do computer science as well. Okay. So that would be, those would be the three really. Okay, and, and that's, so that's, you, you bring them in fresh out of school, then you have a sort of training program, you probably had to, to what kind of testing do you do to get the, get them in? Do you, uh, do you use any tools to help with the, the hiring process, like in terms of testing and knowing the skills that they have? Uh, yes, yeah, um, we, we do. Um, I couldn't speak about exactly what tools we use, but I know we, we do. There's a, a whole variety of, of things we do in terms of uh, conversations and and uh, tests. And uh, 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 so um, that's that's and again, David, who who's at my um, chief operating officer, he, he heads all of that up and does a great job. So uh, we, we do have a very structured methodology. Okay, and are they custom tests, or do you use serve, you use like HackerRank or or some of these other tools to do that? Um, I actually couldn't say. I'd I'd be making it up if I if I gave okay. you an answer on that. Okay, well that's very that's interesting. Um, how you guys do that? Um, so any growing from 10, 10 million to twenty five million, um, going public. That's sort of that that's those are that's your sort of roadmap. Is there? Any any big things that you're working on right now? Like, what's the, the the biggest project you've got going on right now, personally? Yeah, so I think for us, partnerships are very important, and we've we've established some very strong early partnerships, where uh, with with some complementary software companies. So so they're bringing us into their their customers and their new 
deals, if you like, to complement what they do, and also industry-specific partnerships. So we'll be announcing very shortly a very exciting partnership in the electrical industry, and and this is a this is really a, a kind of standards body in the electrical industry who who also have a lot of the industry data and work closely with manufacturers and distributors, and and we will be a kind of plug-in to their industry platform. So for me, getting some of these partnerships really firing and delivering strongly over the next uh, few quarters is is important. Um, you know, we've come from an entirely direct model where virtually every single customer we we work we approach directly, and to scale, we we need we need a good percentage to come through partnerships. Okay. So that would be one. And also launching a second SKU, launching a second product is something we've been working on for a, a little while now, and that will be coming out next year. So that, that will be important to migrate from really a, a kind of product-centric company to a, a platform, which is a broader set of functionality. Okay, so this one is uh, this one obviously will work in, in unison to sort of enhance and give um, other uh, features and functionalities that your customers are asking for? Yes, exactly. Okay, excellent. Well, um, Andrew, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the hour. I want to make sure you get off to the rest of your meetings for the day. So um, uh, I've, I've found this to be, it's a different interview. Um, we're usually talking to bootstrappers. And um, so it's its its uh, very interesting to hear the uh, journey that you've gone and with these big um, investment raises. So congratulations on, on all of that. Anything, anything you'd like to leave our customers with before... Um, we drop off sure no no well look as you can tell i bootstrapped for many 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 years you know i started my first tech company in year 2000 and so and and i've been bootstrapping for kind of um, 18 of those 20 <laughs> 20 years and it's it's a great I, I really believe in it in terms of of using that period to get to product market fit and you know don't start kind of uh uh, investing huge amounts of money in in go to market before that product market fit. I think that's where people go wrong. So I'm a great believer in doing exactly that. I think once you have got product market fit, you you can go so much faster by by raising capital, and that's been my experience. So um, I would I would recommend that. Approach. And and in your in your general experience, what do you feel like? Do you think it's obvious when you have product market fit, or for you, when do you feel like you knew that you had product market fit? I think, I mean, there's so many definitions, isn't there? And I think also companies fall in and out of product market fit along the way. Mm -hmm. um, but I think having certainly for us 10, 10 customers, 10 unaffiliated customers uh, that, that uh, are live and where you've got case studies and uh, it is the genuine core product, you know, it's one code base that's powering 10 customers. That that for me felt like a a good a good sign that we had that early product market fit. Really, okay, that's interesting. And and you wouldn't do it by revenues then. It's just ten customers. You feel like, well, I, no, it's a good point. I think it's it's both, isn't it? I mean, for us, probably ten customers was one million in revenue as well. Um, right. So because so you uh, had big, you had I think big, if uh, if you're yeah, I mean, if if the revenue is say say ten thousand a year, then maybe it's more like thirty or forty customers. Right. But ours is more like or was more like a hundred thousand a year. So I think ten, ten was a good number for us. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Andrew. And we'll of course have enable in the show notes. Um, if people want to follow up with you, how can they get a hold of you? I think LinkedIn is the best way. So just just look at me on LinkedIn and please send me a message on there. Okay, perfect. We'll do that. Thank you so much, Andrew. Jordy, thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software Big Break could be right around the corner. <music>